We're going to open up to Mark chapter 2. In the church Bibles, it should be around page 1473 or 1474. Um, we're going to read um, the first 12 verses. The story of the healing of a, a man with paralysis, a paralyzed man. Let's ask God to speak to us, shall we? Father, we thank you that in giving us the sun, uh, a light was shone into this world. And hasn't grown any dimmer, Lord. It's such a gained brilliance in the passing years and centuries. And we thank you that as we look at Jesus, we feel that we have found, um, we found truth. And, and Lord, we want to come to you with hearts that are open to listen to you. I pray for those who, who do not feel that they know you yet, Lord. I ask that you'd help them to gently, just help them to understand more of what it is that it, what it means to be Christian, what it means to appreciate the reality of, um, of what Christ claimed to come and do and to be. And uh, I ask just just bring out of our hearts a joy and elicit praise from us as we study a word together. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, Mark 2. It says, when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. We've been trying to delve into this gospel with, the, with the, the purpose, the desire that we can look at Jesus, because we have many imagined versions of Jesus. Uh, we have versions of Jesus that circulate in popular culture in, in our own minds, uh, versions of Jesus that we concoct out of thin air sometimes. And then we have the real Jesus, the Jesus who comes to us in the Gospels and is often... Um, quite shocking, often uh, very challenging, and who has audacious, bold claims about himself um, that are, are really life-transforming, life life-dominating. But tonight, what I want to do is turn the spotlight around a, a little bit, as it were, because when you're reading the Gospels, one of the things that you see is the way Jesus interacts with all different kinds of people, and the kinds of ways that he addresses different concerns and needs and questions. And so what you have are types of people in these little portraits. Um, and in that sense, I think you can quite easily step into the various roles or, or mentalities or attitudes that are represented by different people through the Gospels. These different portraits of the kinds of people represent people like you. 
And in that sense, the Gospels, you know what Jesus would say to you because you know what he said to them. And as soon as you recognize yourself in their mentality or their attitudes, you realize, oh, this is how Jesus would speak to me. So this is the way I want to look at it because we've got a few different, different types of people in this little story. And uh, one of the question we need to just ask to open this up is, what is it that Jesus is interested in about you? What does he care about? Because there's lots of wrong answers that we can bring to that. We can think that he, he's most interested in uh, the question of whether we're worthy or whether we've lived a godly life. And of course, Jesus wants to change your life. But all the time when he's confronting people in the Gospels, he's not looking for people qualified. He's looking for people uh, for, uh, based on other things that so he's going to change. He's like, oh, we'll deal with that later. We're going to deal with your life later. So what's he interested in you first and foremost is the question. He's not interested particularly in, 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 a, in a sort of accumulating admirers in the Gospels. In fact, he, he thinks of it almost quite scornfully and he treats that with some disdain. It's like, that's not what he's interested in. The thing which we see him being interested in consistently throughout all the Gospels, all the portrayals, the various um, writings about Jesus is this one thing that he's interested in the quality and character of the faith that you have. (laughs) What your faith looks like, your your ability to believe in God, believe in his word, believe what he has to say, and especially how that relates to your attitude to Jesus himself. And so that's how we're we're looking at this story, because the one thing that stands out about this story is it's a story of faith and unbelief. And the thing which Jesus commends, I don't know if you noticed it in verse 5, he says, when Jesus saw their faith, how he loves faith. So what I want to do is paint three pictures of different kinds of faith and ask the question, what kind of faith does Jesus love? And I want to answer it three ways. I'm going to talk about this audacious missionary zeal. I'm going to talk about honest skepticism. And we're going to talk about sheer desperation. All of them valid and important things. Okay, here's the first. The first kind of faith which we're confronted with here is this missionary zeal. And it's really embodied in the friends, the four friends, who bring the paralytic to Christ. Because if you think about what their action is, at at root, basically, the action they're engaged in is the action of a missionary. They're saying, there's Jesus with all of his power and competency and ability to change your life. Ability to fix you. Ability to do things that you cannot imagine. And here are you in all of your need. In all of your trouble. In all of life's problems. And your inability to solve your problems. And our job, the friends saw themselves this way, was to take this man and bring him to Jesus. That is the simple task that they have. And yet how they go about it is with an extraordinary um, imagination uh, a resilience, a persistence, a passion, this audaciousness that characterizes them. Because here we are, Jesus is in a home in Capernaum. And uh, we're told that he was at home. And the, the suggestion is that, is it his home? Maybe it's some, the home of his family. Some people think it was Simon Peter's home, one of the disciples. We're not quite sure whose home it was, but it's a home which Jesus is identified with. It's in a, and, and that's where he is. And as, he's, you know, as he goes about his day, people gathering to him, and there are crowds all around the house. Now, of course, this creates a problem when you're carrying a man on a bed. If you've ever been in St. Thomas's Hospital around the lifts at any time, 
I tell you, it's a panic station when your wife is giving birth and you're trying to get up to the eighth floor or the seventh floor, whichever it is, and there are people with these beds in your way and just so cumbersome and clumsy. And these guys are wrestling through the crowds trying to get this paralytic to Jesus and unsuccessfully. Now, I don't know if you're aware of how these houses were built in, um, in first century in, in, this, in this particular location, but they, they were flat-roofed houses. And often they'd have a, a, a set of stairs that went up the outside of the house, so you could quite easily access the flat roof, even if it wasn't your home, as is the case here. So they climb up on the outside, and then what you'd have is uh, this flat roof would be constructed through, um, through, through uh, sticks that were laid in, in two directions, and then lots of small sticks placed on top, and then it was sealed with about a foot of thick mud, compressed, hardened, designed to give it some kind of weather protection and strong enough to walk around on. People would, you know, we know that uh, in, in the book of Acts, we find Peter up on the roof praying, for example. So this is like, it's the place where you can hang out. It's like, it's the first century equivalent of an outside space. And um, so there, there they are on this roof. And they are, they're so bold in their faith that they are willing to start breaking someone else's property and do damage to this house, which, you know, it might even be Jesus' house. We're not quite sure whose house it was, but these guys do not care. So passionate are they to get this man in his need to this incredible man in his power. And that's what they achieve. So we're told that they make a hole in the roof, lower the man down through it, and they achieve their mission. And the thing is that Jesus commends them for is He looks at them and he says, he sees their faith, and he loves it. He really takes pleasure in what has just happened. He's like, wow, the roof is ruined. But you guys, <laughs> you're amazing. Like, what you just did for this man and what motivated you to do it, the confidence, belief that this was worth, worth doing. Now, I stress this point because missionaries, as we know, in, in our minds, if you're a Christian, you understand that a missionary in many ways is the kind of the epitome of what faith should look like. Because, you know, generally speaking, missionaries are people who, who take this call that we are called to reach the world with the gospel and then make, take that to the very nth degree, to the max. They make the whole life about this one thing. And very often that involves all kinds of sacrifices, all kinds of passion. I've, you know, some, some years back spent time with some missionaries who had been living in the Middle East. Um, they were both European. They'd been living in, in the Middle East for decades. And their whole life was an expression of the love for Jesus and this simple desire to help people who needed to know him come to know him, just meet Jesus. And so their whole life was geared towards this. And in practical terms, what that meant was that they didn't have any guaranteed income. They depended on the generosity of people who knew what they were up to and would send them money. They didn't have much money, it seemed, or if they did, they, they seem to have given most of it away because they would go to the they go to the markets where people sell vegetables, and they wouldn't just buy, they wouldn't buy the vegetables on the stalls. They'd dig around behind at the back or underneath to where the market stall owner had rejected some of the moldy vegetables, and then ask if they could purchase those ones instead for cheap. And then they'd welcome people in their homes. And this was just before the Arab Spring. And they already had people from like Muslim backgrounds living with them, eating at their table, learning about the way of Jesus. And of course, subsequently, the news I'd heard of them was that they, their house was constantly filled with people who just come with utter need 
and just needed to know about the Savior who could change their lives. And so here we have this picture of what missionary zeal is, this faith that says, I know the answer is Jesus, and I know that you need to meet him. And I stress this because, well, obviously it brings Jesus pleasure. But also, you know, every Christian, I'm not assuming you're all Christians, and we're going to talk to those of you who are not in a second, but every Christian is, is called to be a missionary. We've been having um, stories breaking the news of this man, um, was his name, John Allen Chow, who uh, had visited one of the Sentinelese Islands uh, near India and who was, was killed within seconds, really, of reaching the island by, by a small vessel, a small boat. And one of the debates that's been going on in the media, is so interesting, was whether this guy was a missionary or not. He sort of half-styled himself as a missionary and half as a kind of adventure seeker. So people aren't quite sure what box to put him in. Was he just really daft, or was he really zealous, and which one was it? And uh, part of it, I mean, it's interesting just to think about through, but in some ways it's entirely misguided, because the reality is that if you, if you have met Jesus and you've known that he's transformed your life, the thing you become by virtue of a faith in that reality is that you become a missionary. That's who you are. That's sort of part of your very... Uh, Identity. It's not an elite thing. It's not a. Um, it's not something that's for the the ultra Christians who've who've qualified or who've advanced to some special level in the Christian faith, as though there were such a thing. It's just a very simple thing. It's as simple as helping somebody who doesn't know him know how wonderful he is. And I suppose it's always an expression of faith. It's always an expression of faith because. Maybe there are obstacles to overcome, as there were in this story. Maybe there are hindrances. Maybe there are all kinds of reasons and inconveniences why it's not an easy thing to do, is it? Um, I don't pretend that it's easy, and we all find there's a challenge to this. But there is also the basic expectation that Christ has for his people. I could read to you, for example, these verses in Matthew 5, when he speaks to believers generally. In the Sermon on the Mount, he's not talking to the select disciples, he's talking to everyone. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father, who is in heaven. Friends, what I would love, just in this next couple of moments, is just help you understand to demystify what it means to have this kind of missionary zeal that characterizes your faith. Think of it in these ways. Let me offer you some suggestions. This kind of faith which Jesus loves is first and foremost, it's just an infectious enthusiasm for something or someone that you love. And, you know, we all have this. If I spent, you know, 10 minutes, 20 minutes with you, one-to-one, and we just got chatting, it would not take long for the things which you are passionate about and interested in to come out of your mouth, right? Because we, we generally speak about the things we love, unless we're thinking about the, the things we hate, which is the other end of the spectrum. But generally, we talk about the things we love. We talk about, we talk about great coffee and delicious sourdough and all these things. Well, that's just me. But um, we talk about the things we love. And at its essence, this is, just, this is simply what missionary zeal is. Here's another suggestion. It's just love and compassion for people that overcomes barriers. I really admire these men in their zeal because this was a deeply inconvenient thing. I'm the kind of person who would have shown up and gone, oh, there's a crowd. 
sorry, and then just like <laughs> drops him there or something like that. <laughs> um, but these guys aren't like that. They're not passive. They're not easily defeated. How easily we are defeated by setbacks and pushbacks about the simple thing of just helping people to meet Jesus. But they were not like that. They, they overcame all those boundaries and barriers. Here's another thing you could say. It's a true perspective on eternity. I think that's really evident here because, um, because they, they weigh up their options and they think to themselves, you know, how important is it that this man meets Jesus? And do we dare smash somebody's property up in order to introduce Jesus to this man and vice versa? And of course, when you look at it from the outside in, obviously they did the right thing. But in that moment, how hard it is to do the right thing. Because we're, we're held up by all kinds of petty hindrances and obstacles and excuses and all that kind of thing. Because we don't see eternity as it is, right? We don't see the reality of, of human need. It's also, I should say this, it's a willingness to risk social awkwardness. Especially as, this, as I said, this may have been Jesus' own home. Um, it's, not, it's not generally the way that you want to engage somebody's favor and ask them for something, is to smash your way in. And that's what they did. So here's my summary. And I think this is why Jesus loves the faith that these men express. Faith of this kind is simply this. It's acting as though this gospel is true. It's acting as though this gospel is true. I sometimes pause and and look, think of my own life, and think of my own heart, and think of my actions, and think, do I act as though this gospel is true? Because think about the weight of the claims of the gospel. Here's man in all his need, broken by sin, an enemy of God, corrupted by his own rebellion against God. This is the way the Bible portrays us without a relationship with Jesus. And here's God in his kindness who's given us a way to know him by generously, amazingly, mercifully, kindly providing us with his son, Jesus Christ. And here's the urgent call. Everybody must hear that news. Everybody must hear it. Everybody must come to understand it and know for themselves whether they believe it or not, whether it is true or not. Everybody has a right to be confronted with that and it's our job to tell them. But to live as though we believe that is another question, isn't it? And it's something we need to search our hearts about. That's what Jesus takes pleasure in here. He admires their faith because they... They basically know he's the only answer for this man's need. That's one portrait, the audacious missionary zeal. Christ loves it. Here's another thing I want to suggest to you. That Christ would even take pleasure in an honest skepticism. Now, what we have here in this story are men who seem to me to be a negative example. Um, They were questioning It says in verse 6, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. And we can understand the reason why. Uh, When Jesus said to the man, your sins are forgiven, um, it's a bizarre thing to say, isn't it? Because unless, you know, because what right does Jesus have to forgive a man's sins who he's never met? And of course, it's an audacious and bold thing. I keep using that word, audacious, don't I? It's the word of the night. Anyway, it's, it's a very strong thing to say because he's saying, He's saying he is claiming in himself to be divine when he forgives this man's sins. And of course, the scribes, their kind of theological antenna go up. Heresy hunting moment. And those of us who love theology are very quick alert to even the slightest hint of heresy. And so these guys, their antenna go up. And they suddenly think to themselves, what just happened? He forgave the man's sins. 
and they start questioning in their hearts. And it, it causes us to reflect on, well, what questions are interesting things. Questions in and of themselves are not bad things. In fact, I, I would suggest, and I think it's true, that the Bible encourages honest questioning. I know it's true. In fact, any, any robust religion ought to be able to stand up to the most searching and difficult questions. This is why we host these evenings like we did on Tuesday with Salt Liver. We give people the opportunity to ask the hardest questions they can. And some people take us up on that challenge. Because questions are good things. You cannot get to the truth without r- real serious questioning, with, without interrogating ideas. But the problem is, of course, that questions come from two kinds of places. Is that me? I just scratched my head and my, microwave, <laughs> my microphone went crazy. Wow. Questions come from two different kinds of places. There are, there's the good kind of questions, which I think I would, I would describe like this. It's, it's the question that comes from the place where you say, if it's true, I will act accordingly. And this is an attitude that has honesty and integrity to it. Because you're saying, no matter what the cost to me, personally, no matter what, what it will do to my life, if I discover that this is true, I will live in line with what I have found to be true. And that's a good kind of question. There is, um, there's a moment in the book of Acts where you know, Paul's practice as a, one of the early missionaries was to travel from town to town. and He went way outside Israel to the diaspora Jewish communities that were scattered across the Roman Empire. And whenever he'd go to a town... The first thing you do is go to the synagogue in that town. So let's say you went to somewhere like Galatia, mainly Greek-speaking Gentiles. But there would be a few Jews there, and he'd go to meet the Jews first because he felt they need to know about Jesus because they've never heard about Jesus. And he'd go there and talk to them about Jesus and try and convince them that Jesus is the Messiah that they've been waiting for. And they'd never heard of Jesus up to that point. So they'd be listening. Sometimes they reject him out of hand. They think that's complete nonsense. But there was this one group called the Bereans, and it says that when, Jesus, when uh, Paul went to them, into the Jewish synagogue, and told them about Christ, it says, now these Jews were more noble. Listen to that word, noble. They were more noble than those in Thessalonica, the previous place he'd been, because they received the word with all eagerness. In other words, they listened attentively, examining the scriptures daily so that, to see if these things were so. So questions in and of themselves aren't wrong. These guys ask questions, honest questions, say, well, if it's true, we will act accordingly. But the problem comes with the skeptic when the questions that you have do not come from the honest place in your heart. And I suppose if we're going to put it strongly, the bad kind of questions, which I think is what was going on here in Mark 2, would be stated like this. I don't really care if it's true. Nobody, nobody typically puts it as crassly or as obviously as that. But the reality is that a lot of people are not willing to engage honestly with the question of whether Jesus is who he said he is and live out the conclusion to that should it confront them. What we do instead is we put personal factors in front of the truth claim about Jesus. So we say things like this in our minds or in our hearts. We say, the things I would have to give up are too great to follow through with the reality of what Jesus is claiming of my life. And we all feel the pain of that because there are things in your life which you know are displeasing to God. But some people masquerade behind 
a kind of intellectual doubt about Jesus or put up a kind of pretend doubt when really the issue is I just don't want to part with this lifestyle choice I've made. And how, how challenging that is because the heart is a murky place to figure out, isn't it? To really think through, am I really rejecting Jesus because I don't believe in him or am I rejecting him because basically I don't want to change? And I'm not saying that's easy to figure out about yourself. And in fact, that's also built into the Christian life. Because the Christian life is a succession of putting to death things in your life which you know are displeasing to God and doing that again and again. Because you're constantly torn between the pull of, well, if true, Christ demands everything. But also, this is really nice and I want to go over here and do this. There's also another element to this that I think people, people put the cost of relationships in front of the the truthfulness of whether Christ is who he says he is. And, you know, that's easy to understand. Jesus was the first, actually, to tell us that, you know, if you follow me, you're going you're gonna to suffer. Because people, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. So we know that to be associated with Jesus ever since the time of Jesus, right up to the present day, has meant to suffer people's mockery at the very, you know, kindest end of the spectrum, right the way through to outright persecution in some parts of the world. And even here. You know, at, at a minimum, it can mean that you lose friends or you get misunderstood. You know, you get labeled. And so for some people, there's a lack of integrity there in terms of following through on the conviction that you come to believe in Jesus because it just feels too costly relationally. There's just friendships you don't want to give up or a relationship you don't want to give up. And I get that. There's a pain in that. Undoubtedly, there's pain in that. For other people, it's, it's more of an intellectual pride, if I can describe it like this, that you know, some people stake their kind of intellectual reputation on being clever unbelievers. And we, you know, Christians are just as vulnerable to this as, as non-Christians. We can, all, we can all stand on our intellectual pride in our worldview. But the thing is, if you, if you confront who Jesus is and really wrestle with it, and you come to the honest conclusion, well, I think that maybe what he said had some credibility and some weight. How hard that can be to say out loud or to acknowledge in front of others if you've built your whole reputation on being a hardened critic. I don't know if any things I've named resonate with you. There can be any kind of thing which you put in front of a ready admission for who Jesus is. Now here's the warning that we want to attach to this. Jesus knows the heart. It's interesting how these men were questioning, but it says they were questioning in their hearts. Nobody said these words out loud. Maybe you could have read a bit of their body language. Maybe you could have surmised a bit by the fact that these were scribes and Jesus is being quite deliberately provocative here when he forgives the man's sins. But it also says about Jesus, is immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? And that's, friends, that's Jesus. Wherever you see him in the Gospels encountering people, he seems to know people's hearts better than they know them themselves. And it's certainly true of you and me. Whatever reasons you think are important or you know, solid doubts that you have about him, Jesus looks right in and he sees, he sees what motivates the heart. He sees the heart. And that's something you need to weigh up. What should the skeptic do? Let me offer a few suggestions before we move on to the last thing. I think the, the skeptic, the person who, who looks at Jesus and has a, a moment where they just, they're not sure. 
I think the skeptic should do three things. I think, first of all, you've got to ask why it is that you don't believe. Because very often I found in conversations with people that they struggle to articulate a clear reason why they don't believe in Jesus. Now, why should they? I think the greatness of Christ's claims do demand that you need to know why you would reject him. But if all it is is just an intuition, then I'd encourage you, well, why don't you search that out a little bit more deeply and understand what your reasons are? And if then you come to a clear, clear mind where you say, well, these are my reasons. Perhaps it's just one thing. Perhaps it's a succession of things where you think, these are, my, these are the problems that I have, the reasons I have doubts in him. Then you move to the second thing where you, I'd encourage you to do this, which is to doubt your doubts. Now, I want to read you a lengthy quote from, um, from a pastor called Tim Keller. I think this just really helps set up what I'm trying to say. He says, the only way, this is from his book, um, The Reason for God, by the way, which is an amazing book. He says, the only way to doubt Christianity rightly and fairly is to discern the alternate belief under each of your doubts. So in other words, find out what the reason is that you're, you're rejecting Christianity. And then ask yourself what reasons you have for believing that. How do you know that your belief is true? It would be inconsistent to require more justification for Christian belief than you do for your own. But that is frequently what happens. In fairness, you must doubt your doubts. My thesis is that if you come to recognize the beliefs on which your doubts about Christianity are based, and if you seek as much proof for those beliefs as you seek from Christians for theirs, you'll discover that your doubts are not as solid as they first appeared. Let me give you a few examples to make this a bit clearer. When you ask people, well, what's your biggest problem with Christianity? What's the reason why you don't accept the claims of Christ? They might say a number of things. Some of the things that you would hear, things like this. Some people say, well, the Bible is, is full of contradictions. And what Keller's urging is he's saying, well, listen, if that's, your, that's basically your fundamental reason why you're rejecting this, this faith entirely, how sure are you that that reason is even true? Have you subjected that reason to the same level of scrutiny as you're saying Christians need to subject to their faith? Because in truthfulness, a lot of people will say something like this because it trots off the lips. You heard it from someone who heard it from someone else. The Bible's full of contradictions. It can't be true. But you've never even looked for yourself to discover whether that is, in fact, true. Or another thing people say is they say, well, God isn't fair to send people to hell. But of course, you know, whatever you, that might be a true conclusion, but it seems to me that there's very few cultures through history and very few cultures even contemporary with us that do not believe that judgment is a fair thing for wicked people. And it's actually a very modern, very Western, very liberal probably very white way of thinking. So to stand on that and to say with absolute certainty, God is not fair, and that's the reason I reject all this faith, is, well, well, have you subjected that belief to the right level of scrutiny? Have you really looked into it and thought, well, what's the alternative? Maybe you've said to yourself this phrase, which is very common. People say, all religions are the same. There's no right for Jesus to claim some kind of exclusivity. Like he is here. He's making the highest claim about himself when he says, your sins are forgiven, son. 
You say, well, Jesus doesn't have any right. There's no way that I can believe in Jesus to the exclusion of all the other religions. But again, that's a huge claim to make, to stand here and say, no, all religions are basically the same. And to be really intellectually honest about this, you need to actually look at the foundation on which you're standing, apply honestly and questioning to it, and ask yourself, does this actually make any sense? Because the last time I looked at religions and compared them, I discovered that they were vastly different from one another. And how easily that sentence skips off the tongue, all religions are basically the same, when you look at it, it's actually obviously nonsense. They're, they're incredibly different. Some religions believe in many gods, some religions believe in one god, some religions believe in no god. So in what way are they the same? And that's just on one single point. If you've done those things, then maybe you can move to a third thing, which is ask, what would it take to persuade you to believe? And the Bible offers you, it offers you a measure of proof. This is what Jesus does when he's dealing with these skeptics. He says to them, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Jesus is not averse to offering you intellectual conviction about the truthfulness because it ought to stand up to that kind of level of examination, shouldn't it? And so in Acts 1, when Jesus appears raised from the dead, he doesn't expect his disciples just to take someone else's word for it. It says he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Because the result in those men's lives was that they were so utterly convinced that what they come to believe about Jesus was true that most of them were willing to be martyred for that claim. And what I want to suggest to you is that if you really take a careful look at the claims of Christianity, what you discover is that there is, there is such consistency, such credibility, such solidity to this faith and to the claims of this man, Jesus Christ. And I want to suggest that there's a kind of a mandatory obligation to give this full consideration. C.S. Lewis put it so brilliantly when he said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. I think Jesus is pleased with an honest skeptic's questions. And I want to encourage you, if you are a skeptic, to look at your heart and, and try and figure out if you're, you're bringing honesty to this, this, this line of questioning. Here's the last thing I think he's pleased with. He is pleased with sheer desperation. I've been talking to you about different kinds of faith, really at two ends of a spectrum, right? There's the guys who are so utterly convinced that Jesus is awesome that they're willing to do whatever it takes to bring friends to him. At the other end of the spectrum, there are these guys who are, who are, who are skeptical, who are kind of arms crossed, who are frowning, who are questioning, who are quizzical, and who are basically doubting in their hearts. But the reality is that most of the time, faith doesn't look like any, either of those two things. Most of the time, faith looks like sheer desperation. The paralytic is there, and he reminds us, really, of why faith it matters so much. Because faith is not primarily about reaching some kind of, you know, an answer to debates or reaching a kind of cognitive rest where your mind can suddenly be at peace because you've discovered truth. 
Faith is about your deepest needs being met by Christ who is all-sufficient. And the case of this paralytic is a helpful picture or kind of a metaphor of how we all approach Jesus. Because, friends, you may feel that you're a competent, able, strong person. But in a sense, before Christ, we're all somewhat like this man. You know, he was motionless on that mat. And it kind of is a wonderful picture, actually, of what the Bible says about us in our abilities to fix ourselves. It says we are basically helpless. We, we cannot stand up, metaphorically speaking. You know, a lot of, a lot of what's sort of passes as, um, as helpful sort of teaching these days is basically, you know, pick yourself up. And the Bible says, no, you can't pick yourself up because your basic problem is that you're dead without Christ. It says what you need is, a, is an intervention by Jesus, a miracle to come and, and pick you up and to change you. So if you felt something of that desperation, something of that inability to change your life, something of that sheer, even panic in the face of, of failure, in the face of a life that, that isn't, isn't looking hopeful, this is where Christ comes to you with such amazing compassion. How do, you, how do you summon that kind of faith, though, where you have that desperation like this paralytic had? And, you know, how do you get to that point? I think sometimes Christ has to redefine your questions. And here's what I mean. If you go to the GP, your uh, doctor, with certain symptoms, um, most people, especially young people these days, will walk into the doctor's surgery with a pretty clear idea of what's wrong with them before they even get there. It's like your six years of medical school plus however many years of specialist training are irrelevant because I was on Google earlier today <laughs> and I know what's wrong with me. So they might come with a presenting pain and think, well, I suggest that the system demands certain scans or certain medications or whatever it is. And the doctor might look at you very politely and, or not politely, depending on their personality. But... The reality is that, that a doctor will, will want to take in the whole picture. So you come with one or two symptoms that present. But a doctor's interested in the reason behind the reason. They're interested in, in honing in on, on what is the underlying cause for what you're experiencing or what you're suffering with. And it seems to me that that's exactly how Christ deals with us when we come to him in our desperation. We come to him and it might be whatever your felt need is. It might be that you feel the need for peace. You feel the need for a lasting, settled peace. Or you feel the need to be happy because you feel that you're constantly miserable or that there's a hopelessness in your life. Or you feel the need for family and relationships because you're desperately lonely. And all of these things are absolutely true. They're real things. They are symptoms. Just like you experience physically, you experience symptoms that result from sickness. All of these things matter to Jesus. But you see how we dealt with this paralytic. The presenting need was... Oh, there's a man who can't stand up. And Jesus seems to ignore that, doesn't he? Because he looked at the problem behind the problem. And he says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. This is the most basic thing which Jesus wants to do in your life. It may be the case that you're Whatever angst is going on in your heart, whatever desperation you feel, whatever struggle you're facing, whatever you've come to Jesus for, perhaps hopefully, perhaps skeptically, whatever that thing is, Christ wants to dig beneath it and deal with your more pressing need. 
that he wants to make you right. He wants to clean you up. He wants to make you whole. He wants to say to you, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. Nobody's a Christian until they see that Jesus wants to deal with that more fundamental root issue. And I say that, I want to say that carefully for a second. I want you to think about that. It may be the case that you came to Christ, you know, as, as some people do, they come to Christ, they felt lonely, so they came to a church and they discovered friends and they said, oh, I'm a Christian. Or they came feeling a lack of peace and they learned to pray and they said, well, now I'm a Christian because I pray and I don't feel so anxious anymore. But the truth is that unless Jesus has done a much deeper work in your life in which you've been confronted with the fact that your most basic problem, your deepest problem is the sin problem, the fact that you're an enemy of God without his saving power, and unless he's brought you to a point where you believe in him as your savior, as the one who has redeemed you from such sin, and unless you've felt in your spirit his words, son or daughter, your sins are forgiven, then friend, you're not yet a Christian. And I say that because I know that I've been in churches my entire life and I often rub shoulders with and talk with people who seem to be at church for some other reason, like, like dealing with masking the symptoms of their life when they haven't dealt with the root problem. I want to urge you, think about this. Because the Bible says, effectively, without Christ, we're all just like the paralyzed man, helpless and in need of him. This is man's greatest need, to experience the forgiving love of Jesus Christ. I talked about a lot of stuff this evening, and it's one of those sermons that just goes like, and just you feel like so many ideas, and um, it's a strength and a weakness in a sermon like that. But the reality is that some of you will resonate with just one thing we said, whether it's, you know, you're thinking in your heart, Am I, do I so believe this gospel that I would, I'd act like those men to help my friends meet Jesus? And that's, where you need to, that's what you need to wrestle through with Christ, to say to him, Lord, I want to I I love you with my whole heart. I want to believe in you. I want to know that you're the solution to this friend's need or that colleague's need or my family's need. And have the boldness to do what it takes to help people meet you. Just have dealings with Christ if that's you. There may be some of you who are... Um, aware that you're that you've been kind of standing with the posture of the skeptic thinking about Jesus and that's not a bad thing in and of itself but you need to look in your heart discern am i am i bringing the right kind of questions do i have the right heart mentality will if i discover this is true will i then will i then do what's right and surrender my life to to Christ I want to encourage you maybe tonight you realize well i know that i actually do believe this thing but this is the reason. I've, I've, I realize there's this reason in my life why I'm not willing to act as though it's true. Or I'm not willing to come to him and repent. Maybe right now you can say, Jesus, I want to confess that you're Lord. That's all it means to become a Christian. Say, Jesus, you're Lord in my life. Forgive me my sin. You have a moment now to do that. I want to encourage you to have dealings with him. And it may be the case... You are just like the paralytic, and you've been bringing a presenting need to Christ, and Christ is saying to you, no, before we deal with that, we need to deal with the root problem in your heart. We need to say, we need to, you need to feel my forgiving love. 
You need to know that you're forgiven. And to know you're forgiven, you just come to him, acknowledge that you're a sinner. And as this, as it, when, when, when Christians experience the love of God and his forgiveness, it is so transforming. It is so transforming. I don't, I don't know, I don't really know what's going on in, in your hearts, but I want to give you, I want to give you a couple of minutes now just to have dealings with Christ yourself. Let's just pray in the quiet.